Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a Blendjet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes that come out smooth, creamy, and delicious in just 20 seconds. So go to blendjet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout to get 12% off your order. That's promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order at checkout. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our eighth look into the West Memphis Three. Before we get going, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to support the show, there's a few ways you can do this. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Secondly, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast, make a one-time donation to the show. And lastly, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash decastpatreon for as little as $2 a month. You can get early ad-free shows, exclusive content, and help support your deathcast. We haven't done this one in a while, but we got another one-star review. This one is from a West Memphis 3 supporter, and I say this because I know exactly who this person is, as they were looking for podcast recommendations, and then decided to go and leave me a scathing review on multiple sites, as well as message me. So, it reads, I tried... I always give new podcasts at least a three-episode listen. I suffered through theory of these, and it was rough. I like the host's voice. I like his way of telling the story, but I feel like he misses the big point and focuses on details that really don't matter, coming to conclusions that are just off. Also should do a little more research on subjects he thinks he knows. I found more than a few things stated as fact that are actually just wrong. Actually, Nancy, you're full of shit. I could go off on a long rant and read your rambling letter to me where you attempted to dispute all of the facts I have presented this case, but all you did was parrot the things that Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly have said either themselves or through their lawyers. But I'm going to take the high ground and simply say, fuck off, you're an idiot who has never researched a case, has never worked as a private investigator, has never done any sort of investigating yourself. You simply parrot what you find online that fits your worldview. A worldview, I might add, which is not supported in any way, shape, or form by facts. Alright, now that that is out of the way, Find yourself a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. 
We spent last week discussing the first two of Jesse Miss Kelly's many confessions and left off talking about how as it dawned on him that I might have should have not have said that, he started attempting to backpedal. This was helped greatly by his friends and family who came out and tried to say that he was home all evening and later that he had been out wrestling. That during this wrestling match where he and a group of friends rented a professional wrestling ring in order to try and learn how to be wrestlers, Jesse's head was ran into the steel post in the corner. And not in a worked way, but in a legitimate way. And as anybody who's listened to this show for any period of time knows, I make no bones about the fact that I am a major old-school wrestling fan. And I can tell you, from having witnessed it with my own two eyes, on multiple occasions, had Jesse Miss Kelly gone to throw his head into the ring posts and accidentally, legitimately hit it, everybody would have known about it because these ring posts are not forgiving they are hollow steel tubes and they will bust your face open very easily there is plenty of footage of trained professionals doing this and messing up and injuring themselves so to think that a five foot one 17 year old did this and walked away with not even a goose egg is preposterous. Now, there is some evidence that Jesse and his friends attempted to present in regards to this supposed wrestling match, which was a receipt for the rental of the ring. Here's the problem with that. It wasn't dated for May 5th. Jesse even began to work this supposed alibi into his later confessions, stating that he did go wrestling that night, but it wasn't until after the murders had taken place. I want to put this in context. So on June 3rd, Jesse confesses all three of them are arrested. He sends a letter from jail to his family stating, Y'all know I wasn't doing this. I was wrestling that night. His father and living girlfriend tell conflicting stories with one stating that he was at home all day on the day of the murders and the other stating that he was out roofing that day on the day of the murders. The living girlfriend said that she could prove that Jesse was working all that day and could not possibly have participated in these crimes, although unfortunately for Jesse, she was never able to do so. So now, somewhere between July and September, October of 1993, Jesse Miss Kelly confesses again. And it wasn't like he confessed to, you know, his lawyers or somebody who could dispute that this took place. He confesses to law enforcement. They audiotape it. So he's telling his family one thing after the initial confession. Then he's saying, you know, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. But then he confesses again. And then goes back into this whole, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Any psychologist will tell you that that is the sign of a guilty conscience to routinely 
state something, say you didn't, and then go back to saying it over and over again says that Jesse Miss Kelly had something on his mind concerning these murders that was eating at him and that he needed to get it out. It's not hyperbole, that's fact. There's some supporters who say, no, Jesse only continued to do these confessions because he was being coached by law enforcement. That is actually factually untrue, as we're going to see after we get through the trials, and Jesse still can't keep his damn mouth shut. These same supporters, many of them will say that Jesse thought by, by doing so, he would please the law enforcement and that they would go easier on him or just let him go. We already know that Jesse understood what he did was wrong. He understood right from wrong. He understood what the law was and why it existed as he had been in pr trouble with the law multiple times already. So this idea that if Jesse was thinking that if he just confessed and kept confessing, it would make the law lay off of him is absolute fallacy because he already knew from his past experiences with the law that they would not go easy on him for the things that he had done. He understood that there was consequences and that, that what they had done was much bigger than just beating some kid up. Just as he understood that they weren't going to go easy on him or let him go because he confessed. I'm going to touch on this quickly because there's a bullshit Twitter account out there, West Memphis Three Facts, that likes to say, uh, you know, the police coerced him and the DA offered him a deal. No, they didn't. I have read the transcripts. I have heard the only available audio of that confession as garbled as it was and one of the absolute first things that is stated by the district attorney's office is when they ask Jesse that he, that he understands he is not going to get any sort of deal from doing this and that he is doing so against the best wishes of his lawyer and Jesse answers yes to both meaning he did this of his own free will and own volition with the understanding that he would not be rewarded for doing this. And these are the same people who say, oh, there's so many things going on in the background you just, you don't know about. Bullshit. The only thing that's going on in the background is a feud between Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin because Jason Baldwin realized that Damian Eccles is as big a scumbag as everybody's been saying he was for the last 30 years. And Damien Eccles is trying to keep his name in print by coming out with baseless claims on a case that the state of Arkansas considers closed. But we'll get into that later. So now we've got J Jesse spinning these tales about how he went wrestling and people bringing forward receipts for going wrestling on dates that don't match up to when the murders took place. He also starts stating that there was a situation that took place at the trailer park on the night of the murders where someone hit someone else's child and he became involved in it. Even to his own lawyers, Jesse was giving conflicting statements. On September 24th, 1993, Dan Stidham, who was his lawyer, filed a memo which states, spoke with Jesse today via telephone. Ari, why he tells his dad he wasn't at crime scene and why he tells us he was. 
Jesse also in this memo states that his brain is fried from huffing gas, which he has been doing for two years. Stidham also notes that, according to Jesse, the police started yelling at him and it, quote, got his nerves all messed up. They told him what to say and he said it on the tape. In this memo from Stidham, Jesse gives a rundown of his day that he was woken up by his father at 9 a.m. because Ricky Dees was picking him up for work. He, Dees, and John Darby roofed from 9 to noon at a house in West Memphis from noon to 1. Lunch at home with Dad. 1 to 6 p.m. roofed house in West Memphis with Ricky and John. They dropped him off at 6.30 at home. He talked with Lee Rush at 6.30 and then from 6.30 to 7.15 walked down to Stephanie's house. She wasn't home. Police pulled up in driveway, said someone had assaulted Stephanie's son. Jesse told police that Steph was not home, walked down to his aunt's house, seen Johnny Hamilton on way there, went home, and then left for dies. 7.15 to 11 p.m. left home with Johnny Hamilton, Freddie Ravel, Dennis Carter, and one of Freddie's friends. This version was not corroborated by anyone who Jesse claimed to have had contact with. Later, when talking to his police, he would claim that he made a lot of the things that he told them up, particularly concerning occult practices. The problem with that is Jesse came forward with this information to the police, and the police were told this information by other independent witnesses who were members of this cult. Most of them, but not all, regretted being involved in it, but all of them say, gave very similar accounts of this group's activities. Again, completely independent of Miss Kelly, and to the best of my knowledge, from everything I have seen in this case, not a single one of them has ever recanted those statements to the police. Miss Kelly claimed with a doctor that he told the police what he had done that day and they had basically discounted it, not even making any mention of it in their notes. Now, in order to believe that Miss Kelly told officers this, you have to believe a few things. A, that the entire West Memphis Police Department was massively corrupt and was going to try and railroad these three kids who came from the lower economic end of the stick. And also that they lied and perjured themselves in court. I'm not saying that all police officers are you know, the bastions of their oath of office. What I am saying, however, is that it is absolutely preposterous to believe that the entire West Memphis Police Department, aided by numerous other agencies, railroaded these three young men into life sentences and a death sentence and that these three young men have never been able to present any single shred of evidence in court. These people that, oh no, Jesse, Jesse had an alibi and it stood up, and Jason had an alibi and it stood up, and Damien had an alibi and it stood up. No, 
Not a single one of them has ever had an alibi that stood up in court. Jesse Miss Kelly's alibi was shredded in court. Jason Baldwin never gave an alibi, and he has not to this day. And every single alibi that Damian Eccles has presented from the day that he was arrested has been destroyed. Watching TV at a family friend's house was shot down in court. Talking to girls on the phone all night was shot down in court. And those are the only two alibis that he's ever given. Yet people still believe the lie. You don't have to believe me. Go and look at the court records yourself. They are available. They paint a much different picture of what actually happened than the West Memphis Three and their camp and the god-awful books and movies that have been made about this case portray. All of this goes going on. Jason and Damien are protesting their innocence. Jesse is kind of wishy-washy about it. He didn't. He didn't do it. He did it. He didn't do it. Private investigators going around threatening witnesses, intimidating them, getting them to recant their stories. And the judge decides that all of these kids are going to be tried in two different trials. Miss Kelly's going to be tried by himself. Baldwin and Eccles, who are the masterminds and driving force behind these crimes, are going to be tried together. He also granted motions for a change of venue, with Miss Kelly being moved to Clay County and Baldwin Eccles being moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Jury selection in Miss Kelly's trial began on January 19, 1994. From the outset, Miss Kelly's friends and family tried to put forward a defense for him, namely that Jesse A was not capable of committing these acts, but B he had alibis. Unfortunately for the accused, however, none of these alibis panned out. Miss Kelly's father stated that he had left work at 5.30 to head over to his DUI class. The reason for this is they wanted him to pay the money for the class in advance. Miss Kelly Sr. drove over to this class and that he returned to the trailer around 7, speaking with his son at roughly 7.15 before Jesse is supposed to have gone and participated in this wrestling training. Others, including Stephanie Dollar, gave witness statements saying that at the supposed times of the murders, Miss Kelly was actually in the trailer park. If you remember from other episodes, I discussed how there was an altercation in the trailer park where someone smacked another person's child. This was Stephanie Dollar's son. And they claimed that Miss Kelly that was not only there, but he had also interacted with the police. And if you believe their version of events, Miss Kelly was really interjecting himself into the middle of this situation. However, all of the officers involved in this situation knew Miss Kelly on site. Remember, this kid did not have a good reputation around town. 
And all of them testified that Miss Kelly was not on scene during the time of this altercation. Now, if you're a supporter of the West Memphis Three, we're going to have to believe that there was a gigantic conspiracy involving the West Memphis Police Department, but also really the entire criminal justice system of both the state of Arkansas as well as branches of the federal government who got involved and helped investigate this thing. And I know, you know, the people who support these scumbags, they don't want to go out on that limb because conspiracy theories never happen except for when it supports their cause. Then it's not a conspiracy, it's bona fide fact despite there being no fact to support their assertions. These types of people are the same type who don't believe that there's a possibility that Timothy McVeigh may have acted in concert with other individuals during the Oklahoma City bombing. Or that JFK may have had a conspiracy against him in order to cause his death via assassination. They, they lump that idea of a conspiracy theory into the new meaning of it, which is basically anything that is right-wing and batshit crazy, like the whole QAnon phenomenon, which I wholeheartedly agree has no basis in reality that is provable, and therefore I avoid topics such as that on this show. But the hypocrisy does need to be pointed out. A conspiracy is an event wherein one or more parties conspire together to achieve a specific goal. The theory aspect comes in is that oftentimes, whether there is fact and data to support a thing, it is nearly impossible to prove that it actually occurred doesn't have to be something wild and outlandish like we hear in the news today. It can be something as simple as employer A conspired with one of his employees to get another employee to quit their job. And they did this by making that job miserable for that individual to the point that they felt they had no other choice but to quit that is a conspiracy. A conspiracy from contemporary American culture that has been proven but was thought to not exist for many years is the MK Ultra experiments conducted by the CIA wherein they, with various members of the medical community, undertook experimentation on individuals using LSD and other underhanded tactics in order to see if they could break an individual, control them, or reprogram them. For many years, that was thought to be a made-up story until the congressional hearings of the mid-1970s where it came out that Yes, these things actually did happen. At that point, it was no longer a conspiracy theory. It was fact. Another conspiracy theory from somewhat contemporary times is the entire Iran-Contra. These stuff was going around Washington, D.C., and people were saying that the Reagan administration was involved in arming the Contras in Iran. 
While the government said that this is not true, we do not deal or broker with terrorists. As anybody who lived through it can tell you, eventually it did come out that not only did our government do this, they had to admit it under oath. If you remember, Ali North was heavily involved in this, and Reagan basically had to eat crow and slink before the American public and admit that he had been involved in it. So that's what a real conspiracy theory is, and that's what these individuals don't seem to grasp. You can't have it one way. Either conspiracies exist or they do not. My personal opinion, having done massive amounts of research on this case, spoken to members of law enforcement as well as individuals who were intricately tied to this case, is that there was no conspiracy by the West Memphis Police Department, the state of Arkansas, or members of our federal government to convict these three lonely young men of a heinous crime for which they did not commit. Could the case of the state against Miss Kelly and company have been stronger? Certainly. If you ask any prosecutor, with very few exceptions, they will tell you the exact same thing, that the case they are presenting could almost certainly always have been stronger. However, in this country, you have a right to a speedy trial. And once a judge sets a trial date, the prosecution, as well as the defense, has to hurry to catch up in order to make certain that their side is prepared to try this thing in court. I wholeheartedly believe that had the judge in the Miss Kelly case said, we are going to go to trial for this midsummer of 1994, the prosecution would have been able to get a much stronger case together to present to the jury, one which I believe would have left no doubts in anyone's minds as to the guilt of these men. They were unable to do all of that, however, because of the law stating you have the right to a speedy trial, and because Ron Lax, who attached himself to the defense team, was going around and basically coercing and threatening individuals to recant their testimony in an effort to severely hamper the prosecution's case. That's not speculation or guessing on my part. We have documentation saying that this stuff has happened, and in fact, the judge in one of the trials actually lambasted Lax for these tactics. It is fairly common in criminal trials for someone from the defense, not always with the defense's foreknowledge, but for someone speaking on behalf of the defense to try and go and sway witness testimony. That's just the way that our court system works. That is not to say that every statement that the police received prior to and after the arrest of Miss Kelly Eccles and Baldwin would have stood up beneath close scrutiny in court. Had the court decided that they were going to sequester all witnesses prior to the trial taking place. I, I firmly believe that individuals such as Aaron Hutchinson with his wildly unbelievable stories 
would have been quickly found to have been making things up in order to tell the police a better story. Possibly at the coaching of his mother. We don't know that for certain. There are others, such as the young man that Miss Kelly gave his blood-splattered shoes to, who were in fear of the prosecution and the defense team because he knew they were out there trying to get him in order to get him to talk in court, and he feared this. I think that gives a pretty good indication as to the tactics that both sides were using going into court in order to make certain that witness testimony matched witness statements. Or in the case of the defense, that witness testimony did not take place, or if it did, it did not match what police had been told prior to the person arriving in court that day. These are very basic tactics of a trial. Back to the supposed alibis of Miss Kelly, however, the story of Stephanie Dollar and numerous others is that a woman had assaulted her child and the police had been called. After the police had left, two men got into it and the police were again called all of the individuals who were testifying on Jesse's behalf stated that Jesse was there, was interjecting himself into this entire situation. Again, the officers who knew Jesse Miss Kelly could not place him at the scene. Jesse's father testified that his son left around 7.30 in order to travel to Diaz, Arkansas, where he was going to practice wrestling, while admitting that he did not see Jesse and the other boys actually leave. One question as to whether or not it was a possibility that Jesse Jr. may have been on the scene, Jesse Sr. stated, I don't believe he did it because, yeah, he could have been with them, but he did not have anything to do with it, I don't believe further explaining that he had done his own investigation of this case. Quoted at one point as saying that he was not there. I didn't have proof or anything. I said he may have been there. I do not know. I said, but if he was there, he didn't have anything to do with killing those boys. So there we have Jesse's father damaging his own credibility on the stand, but further, the woman who ran the DWI class that he was attending punched some holes in his story, stating that the class usually ended between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. She even had a sign-up sheet showing that Miss Kelly had attended on that date. The woman further went on to state that on the evening of the 5th, she was being evaluated, and the class actually ran to roughly 7.45. So now we have a 45-minute discrepancy in the time that Miss Kelly says he got home and the time that his teacher is saying that he could possibly have gotten home. Now, I don't know the exact distance between where this class was and where the Miss Kelly's trailer was, but I do have to believe it would have taken him more than a few minutes to get back over there, which means the earliest point he may have seen his son is somewhere in the, say, 7.55 to 8 o'clock mark, which again is very far off of what he stated while under oath. 
And again, this is something, too, that supporters will try and point to when they're saying that there's a conspiracy against the accused, that this DWI instructor was lying under oath or may in fact have fudged things in order to make it appear that Miss Kelly Sr. was at the class later than he actually was. Unfortunately for the defense, others stated that this was in fact the case. So in order for this conspiracy to be true, you're going to have to have the police going out and persuading individuals that attended this class that they needed to lie about the time that they got out. Something else I'd like to point out very quickly, and that's just because I found this while preparing for this week's episode, is the FamousCases.com website on the trials of the West Memphis Three. On their website, it states that the police informed Miss Kelly that there was a $35,000 reward leading to information that led to the arrest of the West Memphis Three. And the reason I'm pointing this out is I have encountered a number of true crime podcasters who use that website as one of their source materials. They also state on the website that after many hours of brutal questioning, Miss Kelly was coerced into giving a confession. Both of those statements, as I have already pointed out in other episodes, are untrue. The police never informed Miss Kelly that there was a $35,000 reward leading to the arrest of the individuals responsible for this crime. Nor did Miss Kelly go through many hours of brutal questioning. We have established the time frame during which Jesse Miss Kelly was questioned by the police as well as given polygraph exams. It started at roughly 10, 10, 15 in the morning and went until early afternoon, at which point Miss Kelly failed his polygraph examination and then began telling the police the truth in dribs and drabs. And I'm throwing this out there because I know, having seen the emails that I have been getting and the comments I've been getting online from supporters, that they're going to try and throw this in my face when I'm discussing all of this. Unfortunately for them, there is no evidence to back up the veracity of your claims. However, there is a mountain of evidence, documented evidence, that disproves that particular piece of your argument. Back to the trial Numerous individuals that testified for Miss Kelly, such as the roofer he is supposed to have worked with that day, were unable to give statements consistent with those that they initially gave to police. Initially, this roofer stated that he didn't believe he had seen Miss Kelly until 9 p.m. the previous night and that he did not work late that evening. However, he flip-flopped in court, changing times and giving contradictory statements about what actually took place. On June 17th, he stated, Miss Kelly is with me until 2.30 roofing, and when we got off from roofing, Jesse went home and had two sandwiches, then went to see his girlfriend, and after that, I didn't see him until later, about 5.30, he came over. When he left, I didn't see him until the next day. 
He was over at my house for about 15 minutes. As far as Jesse being a devil worshiper, I never did know anything about, and I've been nothing knowing Jesse almost all my life. This contractor stated a few days after this on the 18th that Miss Kelly had been with him until about 1.30, and then afterwards, he went home until about 3.30, and then he had seen Jesse and his girlfriend after this point for a little bit at a bus station. And that Jesse was over at his house at roughly 5.30 and stayed for about 15 minutes. On the stand, he stated that they had begun working at roughly 9 a.m. and worked until 12.30 or 1. Part of his testimony... We went back to Highland. Ricky dropped us off at Jesse's house. Jesse said he was going to go get him something to eat. After that, I went home and Jesse said he was going back down to Stephanie's house. Further states that he saw Jesse with his girlfriend at that point around 4 p.m. Jesse came down to my house after he got to talk to his girlfriend. He stayed at my house for about 15 or 20 minutes and he was said he was going to his house. This was the last time I seen him. Not major discrepancies in what he gave police on the two times that he came in to speak to them. However, he's flip-flopping on the time that he and Jesse actually finished work. This is important because there are those who testified that Jesse had worked until 5 or 5.30 that evening. But right here we have someone who has admitted to knowing Jesse their entire life, stating that they did not work that long that day. Ricky Dees, who was the actual owner of the contracting company, stated in police statements that he had known Miss Kelly for eight or nine years. He had never known Miss Kelly to have a full-time job during that period, which is understandable given the fact that Jesse was only 17 when these crimes occurred. And that on Tuesday the 4th and Wednesday the 5th, Jesse had worked with him doing roofing until 12.30. Dees changed his story when he was on the stand stating that he'd actually used Jesse all day on the 4th, but only until around 1 p.m. on the 5th. That could be explained away as a simply he was paying Jesse under the table and didn't want to admit to having been paying someone under the table for as long as he was. But it does point to the fact that Miss Kelly only worked until somewhere between 12.30 and 1 o'clock. Jesse's 14-year-old girlfriend stated that she got off the school bus at roughly 3.30 and met Jesse. They went over to the Dollar household where they watched her children until roughly 4 o'clock, after which they walked to someone else's house where they stayed for about an hour. Leaving at roughly 5.30, as this is when the situation involving the dollar child happened, and that the two of them had actually split up at about 6.30 because Jesse informed her he was going to go wrestling. But then she says that Jesse showed up at the dollar house around 7-ish with his wrestling mask. All the children wanted to wear it, and that Jesse actually left between 7.10 and 7.20. Right here, she's contradicting everything that Jesse Miss Kelly Sr. has said. This young girl also admitted that 
after the arrests, she had spoken with Stephanie Dollar, Johnny Hamilton, and Fred Ravelli, stating that they had discussed where Jesse had been that evening and that it was Stephanie Dollar who had reminded her about the situation involving the police on that night. Stephanie Dollar basically said under oath that she saw Jesse Miss Kelly as basically a good kid gave no indications that she should not allow him around her home or around her children, that Jesse babysat for her four to five times a week. She did admit that she had seen Jesse Miss Kelly associate with Jason Baldwin when she had lived out at Lakeshore a year prior. She also stated that she believed Jason Baldwin was a nice young man who said things like yes ma'am and no ma'am and yes sir and no sir. About the events on May 5th, Dollar stated, All I know is that I seen him at 6.30 down here at the corner where the first street you can come into down at the stop sign over there. I seen him right there up in that area. He's standing by a police car. I had a report. I had to go get my report. So I could remember I worked that day because I wasn't sure it was that day. I knew I had seen him that day, but I wasn't for sure. So I went up Marion's Sheriff's Office and I got my report and on it. It says... 5593. It says what time the call was made and what time the police officer arrived, and it was 630. An incident had happened where a lady had slapped my little boys, the reason I had to call the police in the first place. She did admit that she did not know the time that the boys were murdered, that, that after reading things in the newspaper, she felt certain that she had seen Jesse during the time that these crimes had taken place, which I can't fault her for saying and admitting that there is nothing wrong with trying to help and protect your friends. However, when presented with facts that contradicted what it was she was saying, such as you know the officer stating that Miss Kelly had not been there, Dollar did not back down. She did state, though, that she did not know what he had done after the, all the incidents with the police were over with other than she believed he may have gone wrestling. Numerous other people also attempted to place Miss Kelly at the scene of this entire thing, which again, going off of the police reports as well as the testimony of the officers who responded, was not the case. Jesse Miss Kelly was not there. The individuals who came forward for Miss Kelly were all his friends and were all trying to give him an alibi to contradict the statements that he himself had given to police of his own free will. Many of these individuals, when questioned on the stand, were noted to be wearing yellow ribbons and when asked about these ribbons, stated openly that they were to show a sign of support and solidarity for Jesse Miss Kelly. Not the type of thing any defense lawyer worth their salt wants their witnesses doing and stating on the stand. If Jesse's lawyers had had the wherewithal, they would have asked every one of the supporters who was wearing one of these yellow ribbons to remove it before getting on the stand, as that will paint a picture for the jury that the individual speaking is going to say whatever it is that they can uh, in order to help that individual get off. It's called witness bias and many of the people in the this case and in other cases suffer from it as opposed to telling 
things as they recall them, they will alter the facts of what they were saying in order to make it fit the story that the defense team is trying to present to the jury and the court. They had further testimony from people trying to give Jesse an alibi as well as individuals stating how Vicki Hutchinson came to be involved in the picture. Basically that Vicki Hutchinson randomly wanted to get to know Damien Eccles. Many of these witnesses would state that they had seen individuals leaving for dyes Arkansas to go wrestling and that this crystallized in their mind that it was May 5th. That is important to remember because as we're going to see when we get to the testimony of the individual who actually rented the ring, May 5th was not the day they went wrestling. Something else that is important to note before we get to the entire ridiculous idea of the wrestling training is that Many of the people who Miss Kelly had testified for him were brought up in what has become known as the Bible Confession. And Miss Kelly either agreed that he had spoken to the individuals, however, it was in the context of having committed the murders, or stating that the things that these individuals stated in open court had happened, but not on the 5th. It was a different day. And we are going to be getting to the Bible confession, not this episode, the next one. There were also individuals who stated that they were with Miss Kelly on the date of the 5th that never mentioned this to the police prior to the trial, which casts their testimony into doubt. Some of these individuals also gave statements to police that they had witnessed Miss Kelly drinking, his father and his father's girlfriend drinking, and Miss Kelly doing drugs, including huffing gasoline. Now we're going to be talking about the supposed wrestling alibi. This first section comes from Keith Ravelli. Quote, we all met at Kevin's house. Every time we went, we'd all meet there because that was the central area where everyone lived that went with us and he was there he rode with us that night we met keith at the old exxon station on highway 63 i believe i was starting to get dark at first in my first statement i said it was about 5 or 5 30 but it was getting dark when we left this contradicts what Ravelli stated at another point where he said it was around seven o'clock that they picked jesse up stating that they went there, got a receipt, and wrestled until 11, 11.30. During his testimony, Ravelli stated that he gave the $300 deposit to the man who owned the ring, and that he knows that it was the 5th because the man told him that the next day he had gone to the bank and made the deposit, and that the deposit was May 6th. However... The prosecution produced documents showing that this $300 deposit actually occurred on April 27th, which was the Wednesday prior to the 5th. They did this by showing the depositor's slip as well as the receipt that the man who owned the ring had written for the men. When questioned about this, Ravelli admitted that the prosecution was right and that he had his days 
incorrect. Before going on to state that he had in fact gone out of his way to try and find evidence that Miss Kelly had been with them on May 5th. Again, this is not something that I can blame any of them for. They're trying to save their friend from going to jail for the rest of his life for a crime that they don't believe he committed. The only issue I have with any of these testimonies is that these individuals continue to cling to these stories despite the fact that the prosecution was able to show them time and again that the things that they were stating were not factually correct and could not be correct. Again, that is witness bias, meaning that basically these individuals put blinders on in order to ignore everything that was being presented with, to them so that they could continue to tell the story that they were passing off as factual in an effort to get their friend acquitted. This is not a phenomena that is unique to this case, though. Also, it was found that on the night of the 5th, there was no wrestling training scheduled. From these various testimonies, we get the story of Miss Kelly getting thrown either into the ring post or into the side of the ring and sporting a massive goose egg after this fact. However, there is no photographic evidence, nor has anyone come forward and factually been able to say that they had seen Jesse Miss Kelly sporting this goose egg. I talked about it in other episodes. I'm going to throw it out here. If he had gotten thrown headfirst into that ring post or even into the side of the ring, it would have been known. There wouldn't have been a goose egg unless he just simply bumped his head off of it. From all accounts, he hit his head pretty hard. And having been around wrestling rings many, 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 many times, Jesse Miss Kelly, had he gone into either one of those unprotected would almost certainly have busted himself wide open might look you know phony on tv but especially back in 1993 i can promise you that the body of the ring was either made out of steel or wood and the support posts in the corner where your ropes attached to was absolutely made of steel and that even if it was what they called a spot show ring, which is just a smaller ring that's easily transported around, Jesse Miss Kelly would have had visible injuries after the fifth to indicate that he had gotten hurt while they were practicing. It also came out during trial that Vicki Hutchinson had bought whiskey for Jesse Miss Kelly and another individual on the afternoon of the fifth prior to the murders. Keep that in your hat for when we discuss the Bible confession next episode. It does play an important part in this. After a seven-day trial, Jesse Miss Kelly's case went before the jury on the afternoon of February 3rd. The jury deliberated the next day for roughly two and a half hours before reaching a decision. Jesse was found guilty of first-degree murder in the murder of Michael Moore and second-degree murder in the deaths of both Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. He was sentenced to life in prison, plus two 20-year sentences. On February 4th, Miss Kelly was transferred 
to state prison. And according to the two guards that transferred Miss Kelly, he spoke to them freely about his involvement in the murders. This has always been a bone of contention for supporters, but also those of us who believe that the trio were in fact guilty. There's no way to know whether or not Jesse Miss Kelly was coerced into giving the statements that he gave to these officers, or in fact, if he had given any statements to them at all. We don't have a written transcript, we don't have a tape recording of it, all we have is what the officers reported when they returned. I'm going to quote the report that was sent to Gary Gitchell. The following statement is a narrative as told to Deputy James Lindy and myself. The statement is not a chronological order as it was given by Jesse, but has been put in order to the best of our ability with knowledge of your case. Your department may have knowledge of this in its entirety. If not, maybe it will provide a little insight as to what took place on May 5, 1993. Jail incident report. On the afternoon of February 4th, 1994, Deputy James Lindsay and myself were transporting Jesse Miss Kelly to the Arkansas Department of Corrections at Pine Bluff. Jesse was asked if there was anything he wanted to say, and after being assured we could not use anything he said against him in court, he chose to talk. Jesse advised he had received a call from Jason Baldwin asking him if he wanted to go to West Memphis to get some girls. Jesse, Damien, and Jason met on a local road on May 5th, sometime that evening. Jesse claimed that he had been drinking Evelyn Williams whiskey that Mrs. Hutchinson had bought him, and Jason and Damien were drinking beer. It was also stated that they had smoked two marijuana joints that afternoon. Jesse said that he had known Jason Baldwin since the 6th grade, and he did not know Damien that well, but that Damien would drink human blood remembering a time when Jason was bleeding, and Damien took some of the blood with his finger and licked it off. Jesse stated that Officer Callahan had lied in court about not seeing him on May 5th. Jesse claims that he had a short conversation. After all meeting on the road, the three boys walked to the woods and were sitting in the water with Jason and Damien going under. Jesse said he could not go under because of his ear problems. The three young boys were seen from a distance when Damien told Jesse and Jason to hide. Jesse said they were hiding behind bushes when Damien grabbed Michael Moore. The two other young boys started hitting Damien, trying to help their friend, and that is when Jesse and Jason jumped out and helped Damien beat them. Jesse advised he helped hold them and beat them, but had no part in raping or killing them. Jesse advised two of the boys were raped from behind before and after they were tied up and that Damien and Jason were taking turns with the two boys. Jesse said the boys were still alive at this time. Jesse said the boys were kept quiet by putting hands over their mouths and that Jason and Damien had used shirts and that times their face were pushed into, down into the ground. Jesse was asked how the boys were kept under control while being raped and not tied and Yet, he stated they were like puppies. When you whoop a puppy and tell it to stay, it will. Jesse did say he had to catch Michael Moore, but did not say at what point. Jesse claims that the third boy was never raped, but he may have been the one that Damien took his penis and put in his mouth. The young boy's penis. Jesse said at one point Damien and Jason had one of the boys in a headlock with one he believed had his penis in the boy's mouth while the other one had him from behind. Jesse said he did not mention the ears to the police, only a headlock. Jesse also mentioned that sticks had been used to beat the boys. 
At one point, Jesse said that Jason had a buck-type locking knife and cut it all off and threw it in the weeds, saying the boy was alive and tied at this point and that he was surprised blood did not get on him because blood went everywhere and he was about a car length away. Jesse said they threw him into the water and he was still squirming around in the water, at which point he left. Jesse said he does not know what happened to the knife. Jesse said he believed the other two boys were not conscious when he left, but they were not in the water. Jesse also stated that Jason called him later and asked him why he left, and he told them he could not watch it any longer. He claims the only other contact with Jason and Damien was a couple of times at the skating rink, but they were mad at him. Other information. Jesse claims his lawyers asked him if he was innocent and that he had lied to them. Jesse said the boys had a clubhouse, and that's why he thinks they were in the area. When talking about the meetings... They had Jesse could remember about nine people showing up, and at one particular meeting, Kent was to bring a dog as his treat. The dog was taken away in the woods where it was killed and skinned. The dog was brought back and cooked in something that looked like Crisco in a washing machine-type bucket. Jesse said he eat a little one time and got sick. Kent was to catch the dog at the trailer park, and Jesse believed they had killed about four dogs altogether. Jesse said Jason and Damien would both have sex with Dominique at these meetings. Jesse said he lied about the time and the rope to trick the police and to see if they were lying. Jesse says he feels the other boys tricked him into doing what he did. Jesse claims he has felt sorry for what has happened and talks as if he wants to testify against the other boys so they will not go free and to help himself. Jesse did say the photograph showed to him was a group picture of the boys their bicycles in front of a house. There's some things important in here and that Miss Kelly stated to these officers apparently that he had willingly lied to the officers. But he also mentions doing drugs beforehand. But by and large, the story Miss Kelly gave these officers, assuming he actually gave this, I'm not going to say that this particular confession was something that actually happened and that if it did happen the police did not bully him because we don't know what happened inside of this vehicle but the story that they're giving in this narrative is largely consistent with the statements that jesse miss kelly himself gave we're going to call it at this point i hope you have enjoyed this installment on the west memphis three Next week, we are going to get into the last of the two known confessions by Jesse and Miss Kelly, namely the Bible confession that he gave to his lawyer, as well as the confession that he gave to the prosecutors before the trial of Damien and Jason. Until next time, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid.